Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. Great to see all of you here. We're going to take a look this morning at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we will begin our reading in verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 beginning in verse 18. If you have been coming to our men's meetings on Wednesday nights, you'll have a measure of advantage this morning. But this passage has been on my mind for some time and going through it with the men on Wednesday nights. Of course, now we're in, we'll begin chapter 3 this week of 1 Corinthians, but we would invite you to come and be a part of that. And by the way, I'm not sure exactly what to tell you at this point, but we are recording it and we're making these lessons available. So um, not sure exactly where to tell you to go at this point, but perhaps later the website or Facebook or somewhere. Uh, I'm fortunate that uh, there are folks around here that know how to do all that. I, I, I've not a clue. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to begin our reading in verse 18. Paul is teaching us about the cross. For the word of the cross, or the teaching of the cross, the things that God says about the cross, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Think of all the divisions of different groups, different colors, different uh, sexual identities, different this and that's that we have today, that different nationalities, all of the things that separate us, some fabricated, some real, uh, some are artificial, some are personal preference, some are uh, quite natural, but of all the things that divide human beings, when it comes to the cross, did you notice how Paul said there are just two groups, those who are dying and going to hell and those who are being saved. That's how he divides us. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. He says, where is the wise man? And where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom, in other words, God in his own wisdom saw fit that the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. You won't find him in the telescope or microscope. You'll see his work, but you're not going to discover him through human intellect. He has sought through his own wisdom, he saw fit to make that impossible. God was well pleased, though, through the, or well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached 
to those or to save those who believe. For in the, indeed the Jews ask for signs, and the Greeks constantly search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. We preach a crucified Christ is literally how you would translate that from the Greek. We preach a crucified Christ. That's important because the Jews wanted a warrior Christ. The Greeks wanted a sophisticated Christ. They wanted a sophist. They wanted a great, uh, uh, one who was a, a great philosopher, one who uh, could bring about great wisdom and, and analyze uh, the mysteries of the universe. But he says, no, we preach a Christ that is crucified to Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, it is foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. God has no foolishness about him. Literally, we would translate that the foolish thing of God. We talked about that with the men, but it's the foolish thing of God, which was the cross. That's wiser than any human could ever come up with and the weak thing of God God has no weakness but the thing that was perceived as weakness dying on a cross the weak thing of God is stronger than men then he invites us to look around the room he says for consider your calling brethren that there are not many wise according to the flesh not Many mighty and not many of great noble birth. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world, the things that the world believes are unimportant. And the despised things God has chosen, the things that are not the things that don't matter to this world. He has chosen them that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But it's by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, Jeremiah 9, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. The problem for Christianity in the city of Corinth was it lacked sophistication. It seemed foolish to their heroes, so it seemed foolish to them. We see the same pattern in our world today. Our entertainers rarely mention God, and if they do, it's usually some whacked out version of spirituality that they themselves have fabricated. But our heroes, our important people and our culture don't exactly embrace Christianity, so it is quite a challenge for us to raise our children to say that, well, 
He's a football star and doesn't seem to need God, but he needs God more than he might seem that he does. He, he, he may never profess a relationship with the Lord. The heroes that our children adore and, and, and the entertainers of our world, they lead the way uh, that, that leads away from God and points more towards self-sufficiency and, and personal ability and talent and all of that. And that is exactly what had happened at Corinth. They had just philosopher after sophist, one after another, who would come and and speak all kinds of great oratories before them, but the Christian God they held in disdain. And they said that he could never measure up to the mythology uh, of the Greek gods. He just, just, he just doesn't uh, uh, feel the bill like they do. Any God, they said, that could feel pity. They said if a God can feel pity and have any kind of pathos, they call it, toward human beings, then there must be someone greater than Him. If you can make God cry, if you can, can make God love you, if you can break God's heart, then the Greek philosopher said, then God must have someone that's greater than He. So they just couldn't accept God. Paul says it really falls down to the cross. He said it's the cross that gives them the biggest problem. And why is that so remarkable and so controversial? And I would say to you, it still is in religious circles today. And I, I, I hate to say this, this breaks my heart, but among many who are sitting in churches this morning... The cross is a bit controversial for them. I, I know we've said it quite a few times, but it's hard to imagine that there are people sitting in Baptist churches uh, this morning in Rutherford County. I'm quite sure that they see the death of Christ as more of an unfortunate occurrence that happened that caused him to be a martyr, but has absolutely nothing to do with him being the Savior of the world. That's quite unfortunate, Paul would say. The cross divides, it separates, it does it bring us together and unite us uh, like a lot of people would would think we all should just be able uh, to come together and, and, and let's eliminate this language, this divisive language of, of sinner versus saint and, and, and holy versus depraved. Let's, let's do away with that language because that doesn't sound like their Jesus. That doesn't sound like the God that they know. They believe that God would be a uniter and, and not a divider. And Christianity shouldn't be separating one from another, but it should be bringing us all together. And that's just not what Scripture teaches. In fact, it's not even close. Bonhoeffer, uh, what a morning to talk about him after seeing some of the uh, film we saw this morning. But Bonhoeffer talked about, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he talked about cheap grace. He was a, a preacher during uh, 
uh, World War II, and uh, he was, uh, the Bonhoeffer family was uh, the elite in Germany. They were the upper crust, and, and they could have found great favor uh, with the Fuhrer. But they were Christians, and that was a problem for them. Others, it wasn't a problem, but they just sold out to the Fuhrer. The church in Germany, the magisterial church of Germany just sold out to the Fuhrer. But there was a small group of Christians, and, and they were led by the Bonhoeffers, uh, some of them, who, who were called the Confessing Church. And they said, we confess the Scripture of God, and we confess that Jesus Christ is our Savior. And we will do that even if it cost us our very life. Bonhoeffer was a leader among them, he was executed by Hitler. He was hanged at the gallows six days, six days before we liberated Germany at the age of 39. He had escaped the claw of the beast. He was in England. He preached at some of the greatest cathedrals you could find. He came to the United States and preached to hundreds and thousands of those who would just listen to every word he had to say, he was a tremendous speaker, but the day came in his life when he said, I must return to Germany. I have to go back. I have to preach the word to those dear saints that are holding on, wondering if they'll be alive tomorrow. He went back, became part of a plot to assassinate Hitler. That would get some, they'd take points off for that nowadays. He was in prison, later killed. But this is what he said. He talked about cheap grace. He said, cheap grace. He says it's grace without the cross, which is sold on the market like a cheap jack's wares. He said, cheap grace means justification of sin <coughs> without justification of the sinner. I need to read that again. That is the hymn of progressive Christianity today. Justification of the sin without justification of the sinner. Let's take the sin, leave the sinner alone, mind our own business, church. Leave the sinner alone and take the thing that is entwined in their life, that's ruining their life, that's wrecking their life, and let's make that not so bad anymore. And leave the person to rot in the putrid squalor of the effects of that sin in their life. But let's justify that sin. That's cheap grace. It means justification of sin without the justification of sinners. He said it's the forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. He said, the way the world goes, he says it is the, the, the world goes on the same way. It's grace without the cross. It is grace without Jesus Christ. And, and, and understanding that he died on the cross for our sinfulness. He didn't just come as an example for us to follow. He didn't. He wasn't killed because he loved and fed the hungry, but he was the son of of God Almighty, our Savior, and our only hope of having a relationship with God. Well, when it comes to the cross, it is divisive. 
We'll look at two things this morning. One, some find problems with the cross. And it's amazing that this is not a new idea. It's very old. Matter of fact, Paul probably visited Corinth about 51 A.D. He will later write this letter back to them after his visit. He was there a year and a half. He will write this letter back to them later uh, dealing with some issues. Matter of fact, they had written to him and said, we have some problems and uh, it'll take him quite a few chapters to even get around to the things that they wrote about. He is trying to lay some groundwork and help them to see this is why you have the problems you do at Corinth. And he says a lot of them have to do with the simplicity and the sacrifice of the cross. Some find problems with the cross. Some in that day did and it's the same problems that many find today. First of all, he talked about the Jews in verse 21. He said the cross for the Jews is a stumbling block. The word in the Greek is skandalon. We talked about the verb form, skandalizo. Uh, we can translate it to offend or to trick or to catch. Uh, it is the trigger and the trap uh, that would catch an animal. That's literally what the word meant before it got religion. It was the little thing you touched or whatever it might be, the trip wire that set off the landmine. That would be the skandalizo or the skandalon. And it would trip them up. It, 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 it really messed them up. They were well on their way to having a relationship with God. They were looking for a Messiah, in fact. They were waiting on the day that the Messiah would come. That was not their problem at all. But what got them was that, you mean you're going to die on the cross? Don't you know that Scripture teaches that cursed is anybody that dies on a cross? Why aren't you riding a horse into town instead of a donkey? A donkey would indicate you've come to bring peace, and, and, and yet, yet we need a warrior. Don't you see how the Romans are treating us? And, and we're ready for the Messiah to come and, and to put Jews on the throne where they belong and, and, and set us in charge of the nations of the world. But that's not what they got, and it's not what they wanted, and they were offended. They were offended. Matthew 26, 31. I think this is, boy, profound. Jesus said, all of you will be offended. Same word, scandalon. All of you will be offended by me tonight. Why? Because I am going to die. And then Jesus said to them, you will all be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. I'll give you another passage in Matthew chapter 6. They had come to talk to Jesus about John the Baptist. And John had sent uh, uh, an emissary to come and ask Jesus, are you really the one? Are we to look for another? And, and he said to them in verse 4 of Matthew 6, he says, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. In other words, don't go tell him what I say. Go tell him what I've done and he will know I am the 
1. And then verse 6. It almost seems out of sorts, out of place, but not now. Jesus says, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. You were offended by John. He was a little wild. John was a little edgy. Uh, he had a leisure suit made out of camel hair. How to make you edgy. He had a diet that was that of one who lived in the wilderness. He was a man of simplicity. He was the, he was the leader of the minimalist. Minimalist. There we go. Had to swallow a couple syllables, get that one out of his day. He was a little bit different. Jesus said, I'm a little different too. That's why John and I get along so well. He said, that's why I can go ahead and tell you now. A lot of people think John is crazy. He said, I tell you, of those born of woman, there is none greater than that crazy wild man up there in that prison. None greater. It's amazing. They were offended. Many today are offended. I, I, I can tell you, you I know you don't hear much of it here. It's, it would a lot depend on the people that you hang out with and listen to and, and, and are around. But I can tell you there are lots of Christians that they, they, they got tired of what they call slaughterhouse religion. And, and, and they, they equated the death on the cross and the propitiatory nature. That's an that's a $85 word. Thought I better use a good long word since I messed the other one up so badly. But the propitiatory nature was that he satisfied the wrath of God against us. They don't like that whole idea, that, 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 that business. That's to them, it's pagan. It's like throwing your kids in volcanoes to make it rain. To them, it is the very same thing, and they are offended by the by the cross. And they call themselves Christians. They see Jesus as a great example. They do believe that at least he thought he was the son of God. And oh, they revere him, boy, every way in the world. But then they don't realize it, but they turn right around and call him a bald-faced liar. Because Jesus Christ is either God or he's the biggest liar who ever lived. And they don't know how to handle that. Well, the Jews had problems, so did the Greeks. Paul says the Greeks had, number one, some theological problems. He says, and to the Gentiles, it is foolishness to them. They didn't believe that a God could have any feelings toward human affairs or cared about them. Plutarch said, one of their great philosophers, it is absurd to involve God in human affairs. They just didn't believe that God, the gods cared about things that went on with humans at all and we get our word hermeneutics from Hermes who was the messenger of the gods if the gods had something to say they would speak through him they didn't talk to human beings and they didn't care about this world and they didn't care about people's feelings they had no apathy whatsoever or, or all they had was apathy they had no pathos they had no no feeling toward human uh, the human condition whatsoever to talk about a god that 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 actually cared about what went on on this earth was absolutely foolishness to them 
They also had some philosophical problems with the cross. In verse 21, it says, The world through its wisdom did not come to know God. When the world looked at things through its eyes, when instead of looking at it through a biblical worldview, looking at it through a, a humanistic worldview, they never saw God. They, it was like, like God evaded them. He, he, he just would not allow Himself to be discovered that way. He was choosing another way to reveal Himself. And you know us hum- humans, we don't like to have options taken away from us. We'd like to be able to come to God, you know, maybe one through science and, and maybe others through philosophy and, and, and others through some dignified way and maybe some through preaching or whatever. We don't like it when God takes options off the table. We want to come to God when we want to come to God and how we want to come to God and that will never, ever be careful the next time you say, one of these days I'm, I'm going to get things right. You don't get to choose the time. If God is touching your heart, then today is the day of salvation. Not when you feel like it. God has his own calendar. He cares nothing about yours. God's calling you. If He is calling you, He's calling you to come. Gordon Fee, theologian, said this, God, a God discovered by human wisdom would be both a projection of human fallenness and a source of human pride. And this constitutes the worship of the creature, not the Creator. We were created in the image of God, so everything we create, we create in our image. That's how we do things. I see it in my own life. Uh, let me build you a porch sometimes. I, I don't do much of that anymore, but I used to build a few decks. I promise you, you could have put the USS uh, uh, whatever on it. Uh, I want to build it strong. But two before we do, a two by eight ought to really get it. By the time I got done building it, it would break the whole rest of the house down. But you had a deck, uh, uh, don't stay in the house if a tornado comes. Go out, get under the deck Preacher Mike built. You'll be there. <clears throat> you see, I, I would create a God like that. I want things to, to be there, man. I welded a lot of stuff in my life and bolted it. Oh, yeah. I didn't want it coming loose. So I would create in my image. We create a God. If we create a God, he'll be in our image. And we've got gods running everywhere today. Created in people's image. That, that's why a lot of people's gods, all he cares about is social issues and, 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 and the more of uh, the liberation theology that we have today where uh, social justice is considered salvation. And, and we have a lot of that today because there are a lot of people. They're all about social justice. They're all about helping the poor. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But when they decided they wanted a God, they created their own who felt exactly like they did about things. Instead of being in His image, they decided to create Him in their image. Worldly wisdom is always like that. We wind up focusing back on ourselves. I... I, I, I love science, and I love what it says about God. And I, 
I, I enjoy it so much. Ole Romer. Ole Romer, he was the Danish astronomer who was the first scientist, and this was in the 1600s, early 1700s. He discovered the speed of light. We didn't even know light moved. It was so fast. We didn't think light even moved, but Ole Romer, he was trying to help mariners who were out at sea figure out where they were latitudinally. So, uh, and don't ask me how all of this works, but he took the moons of Jupiter uh, particularly Io, that's one of the moons of Jupiter, and he measured how long it took it to move from one side of the planet to the other. And, and he was trying to set up some kind of clock that those who sail the seas could, could use to help figure out exactly what time it was where they were so they would know how to get to where they were going. Now, I know you're thinking, wow, that's... Interesting, what does it have to do with us today? Well, think about us. Human beings, we naturally go, oh man, Ole Romer must have been brilliant. Because we automatically think about who discovered this and that. We rarely think of who made light to be so blooming fast. Who created light? In the Hebrew, I love it. It's so simple. If you read the story of creation in Hebrew, uh, God doesn't say, let there be. God says, light be. Two words, light be and light was. Boom. We're not fascinated by that. We're fascinated by Ole Romer. He discovered it. Man, we, it was the 16, 1700s before we even knew it moved. And we're patting ourselves on the back by all the great discoveries we have made. It's the discoverer who gets the attention in our world. We ought to think about sometimes when they discover these things, wow, who created something like that? My goodness. How is it? I mean, this globe, what does it turn? About a thousand miles an hour? That's how, how fast it's turning right now. We're moving through space right now at 19 miles a second. Seems to be doing pretty well. Everything's right in place. We go, wow, boy, our scientists are smart. God's got to be in heaven going, man, you bunch of dummies. Have you not thought about, well, who set all that up? I forgot if the tilt of the earth was off. And it, it's like point and about 20 zeros. I don't know. If it was off just that much, then life on this earth would be impossible. Ooh, boy, they're smart, aren't they? Well, who made it that way? And who's kept it that way? Wow. Well, that's worldly wisdom. It's the way we look at things. Sociologically, they had some problems with the cross as well. In verse 26, Paul says, Consider your calling. If you think God is looking for the sophisticates of the world, if you think he's looking for those who have higher education and all of that, he says, look around the room. He says, consider your calling. 
in verse 26. He said, there's not many of you who are noble. You had to be born in the right family to have nobility. And, 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 and there's not many of you that, that are imported and, and swab and debonair and all of that. Uh, you, you, not many of you that way. God says, look around the room. I don't see a lot of Kennedys. I know we have some. I'm talking about a different group. We don't have a lot of Oprahs here today. Look around the room. Some of you, AI, you look, you look pretty sharp. Most of us look like rednecks. I told you before, I don't even listen to my sermons because I sound like cornbread when I talk. Paul says, consider your calling. God's using you. He didn't call you because he just thought, boy, he's just got so much going on. Have you angels noticed him? Hmm. Kelsus wrote about 178. You'd think he wrote last week in the New York Times. But he wrote about Christianity before it was 200 years old almost. And he said, this guy Jesus perverts the words of the philosopher. I'm sure that broke Jesus' heart when he heard that. He wrote what was called in the, the Greek, uh, the uh, Lagos Agathe. That is the true word. He wrote a document called the true word. You can, can look it up and have your very own copy. He stated that Mary, his mother, would have never been worthy of having a child of importance, that Jesus was born out of some kind of adulterous uh, fornication. She was a whore and because she was not rich or of royal descent, then there's no way from her loins any one of importance could ever come. Now you think, now boy, I didn't know we had idiots way back then that had that much brass. We thought that, no, they just now finally come out. No, they've been here forever. They've been here a long time. He went on to write this in uh, about 178, he wrote, Let no cultured person draw near to Christianity. None wise, this is not for you, none simple. For all that kind of thing we count evil. But if any man is ignorant, if anything is wanting in sense and culture, if any is a fool, then let him come to Christianity boldly. Of the Christians he wrote, he says, we see them in their own houses, wool dressers, cobblers, fullers, those who pull cloth. He said, the most uneducated and vulgar persons. He says, they're like a swarm of bats or ants creeping out of their nest or like a bunch of frogs or toads, a symposium. I didn't know you could use the word frog and symposium in the same sentence. A symposium of frogs round a swamp or worms in a conventicle. Boy, he was quite the orator, was he not? A convent of worms, he says, in the corner of a mud hole. 
Now that's what he thought of us. I bet you just are broken hearted, are you not? You've spent all your life and didn't even know Kelsus. But how many of you know Jesus? And if you never meet Kelsus, and if you've met Jesus, you won't meet Kelsus. But if you've met Jesus, you've met who you needed to meet. It's amazing. Christianity was where a nobody could become a somebody, and they didn't like that. As a matter of fact, a slave in that day was considered by the Greeks and the Romans as nothing but an utter fool. And a Roman could throw his slave out like he would throw out a shovel or a hoe that had become defective. He could kill him on the spot. Nobody would ever care. Kill him in public at the city square. And nobody would ever care. And when that slave family had children, it would be no different than when his cows had a calf. That calf doesn't belong to her. That calf belongs to me. And that is the way that they lived their lives. And that's the way they treated people. Women was another thing that belonged to them. They they were considered property to them. But when Christianity came along, it it began to change all of that. And, And I hate to hear people today out of their ignorance talk about how Christianity is holding women back. There is nothing in the world that has ever liberated women more than Jesus Christ. I love the fact that in Jesus' day, in a court of law, a woman couldn't be a witness. If she saw you rob the store and she's the only one, you can go free because her testimony didn't count. They couldn't believe her. She's too unreliable. She's too fickle. You know how women are. That's what they said, honey, not me. So when the greatest event in the history of the earth happens, resurrection of Jesus Christ, guess who God has witnessed it before anybody else? Tell me he doesn't have a sense of humor. Someone has written, Christianity made people who were things into real men and women, more than that into sons and daughters of God. It gave those who had no respect their self-respect. It gave those who had no life eternal life. It told men that even if they did not matter to other men, they still mattered intensely to God. It told men who in the eyes of the world were worthless, that in the eyes of God they were worth the death of His only Son, Jesus Christ. Christianity was and still is the most uplifting thing in all of the universe. Hallelujah. It was an old song when I was a little boy. My dad would sing. I don't know how old it is. It's been around a while. It says, once I was clothed in the rags of my sin, wretched and poor, Lost and lonely within. But with wondrous compassion, the King of all kings, in pity and love, took me under his wings. I got to do this. Now I'm a child. Second verse. With a heavenly 
My Holy Father has made me his own, and I'm washed by his blood, and I'm clothed in his love, and someday I'll sing with the angels above. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I'm a child of the King. His royal blood now flows in my veins. And I, who was wretched and poor, now can sing. Praise God, praise God, I'm a child of the King. Praise God, praise God, I'm a child of the King. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Mm. I read that first verse. I felt the Lord saying, I'm going to have you shoot your tongue off if you don't sing the second one. Whine about can't play, get a chance to sing and won't. Second of all and last of all. Some find problems in the cross, some find power in the cross. First of all, the cross offers salvation. In verse 18, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's in verse 18. There were two words in the Greek for power. Exousia is the word for authority. To those who received him in John chapter 1, he gave them the exousia to become the sons of God, the authority to become the sons of God. Sometimes we translate it, as power, authority is a better word. But there is a word for power, and it's dunamis. And yeah, you're right. We got our word dynamite from it. Alfred Nobel, I think it's cool that the Peace Prize was named after him. And what did he invent? Dynamite. <laughs> or dynamite, if you watched TV when I did growing up. Dunamis is that power that moves things. Things that don't want to move. Man, I remember years ago when I was doing pipe construction and I was working with John Crowder over here off of Union Road and oh, once in a while we'd be going under a highway and we'd hit a big rock. I always loved it when we decided, boys, we're going to drill and shoot it. Oh, oh, oh. I knew then we was going to make some noise. We're going to wake some people up. Dynamite will move things that don't want to move. For you and I, we see the cross as power because what were we like before we, we, we encountered God at the cross? Our, our lives had things in them that wouldn't move, right? 
We had things that had us around the throat that wouldn't turn loose. We had issues in our life that wouldn't go away. But the dunamis, the power of the cross, could break those curses and, and break those yokes that were on us and set us free. He says, so for us who are being saved, it's powerful. It's not a shame. It's powerful. He says, secondly, the cross offers righteousness in verse 30. Dikaiosuna is the word in, in the Greek. It means to set into a line. The righteousness of God, that's, that's in verse 30. It says that's where we get the right. It brings the righteousness of God to us. And I know we talk a lot about righteousness here, and, and perhaps I've ran it in the ground, but it occurs 228 times in the New Testament. What did you want me to do with it? It occurs 40 times just in the book of Romans because it's such a blessed truth that encapsulates the gospel that God took His righteousness, which was perfect, and gave it to me uh, where in my righteousness would always be imperfect. He gave it to me as a free gift of grace. Hallelujah. Man. Through it comes righteousness. You hear the word right in there. Nowadays, there's this big argument about, well, who decides what is right? You don't. What is right is discovered, not decided. The decision's already been made. It was made by God. In Romans chapter 1, verse 17, Paul has just told him that he sees the gospel as the power of God. And in the very next verse, he says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. What God says is right is revealed. He settled all the stuff about gender, about the design for marriage, about sexuality, all of that. And when I hear Christians walk around like an oaf that can't figure it out, and they claim, well, we just don't know, and, and there's just so much, you know, we love not knowing. Really, we do. You let somebody die that beat his wife every day of his life. And wouldn't go to church and hated God and everybody that had anything to do with God. And when he dies, we'll go to his funeral and stand around outside and go, well, you know, we don't know. What don't you know? Well, we're not to judge. We're not, you don't have to judge. Jesus said, even you got enough sense to know you get apples off of an apple tree. Right? You get oranges, this is a little harder, but you get oranges off of a, um, see, a little biology there, you did good. Even he, we know that. He says, you know them by the fruit that they bear. So we don't have to sit around. We, we love enigmas. We love things that we can't figure out because it kind of gets us off the hook. We don't have to make a decision about what is right and what is wrong anymore. We can hide behind verse, that verse in Matthew chapter 7 verse 1. Don't judge. We're not supposed to judge. We're not supposed to decide you know, uh, about people's lives. Not about people's lives, but I can tell you what they do is either right 
or it is wrong. And the Word of God has already made that clear. And you and I can't get off the hook and hide behind that business of, well, you know, we just don't know. The righteousness of God has been revealed. The cross not only brings salvation, righteousness, it also brings sanctification. Sanctification is being set aside, set apart from the world. Not plugged into the world, but set apart from the world. I thought about this this week. It's not sanctification that that many want. It's certification that they want. It's validation that they want. Really, it's authentication that they want. God's not here to certify you or authenticate you or validate whatever it is you believe. He is to separate us from the world. But nowadays it seems like it is a Christian virtue. The better you can plug into the world, the better you can hide right in the middle of the depraved world around you. That, that's a plus in progressive Christianity. Well, I didn't go in there preaching to anybody. I just fit in and didn't make a bunch of obnoxious, divisive statements. Man, I think it's time we stood up church and made a few obnoxious, divisive statements. Not for the sake of being obnoxious, but for the sake of the truth. Let's tell the world, no, there is only one way to have a relationship with God, and that is through His Son, Jesus Christ. That should be enough to get you killed in most places. And then last of all, the cross offers redemption. I like that word redemption. Apolutrosis is the Greek Latrosis is ransom. Apo is a preposition from, from a ransom. In other words, redemption means to pay the price for something so it can be set free. It's not that the price is ignored. It has to be paid. So when Christ redeemed us, Galatians 3.13 says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us. Did you get that? God didn't just wink wink at our sin and say, look, I'm God. I'm going to make up the rules. If you want to follow me, we'll work something out. You be good boys and girls from now on and I'll just ignore what you've done. No, he can't do that. That would be against his nature. And then he wouldn't be the God that he says he is. He says, no, I've got to become the curse for you, I have to pay the price so you can be redeemed. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. There's that verse again. Verse 14, in order that Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles so that you would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And then in verse 31, he says, So, having said all of that, if any of you down there at Corinth want to brag about which one of your favorite philosophers is best, if you want to keep trying to mimic the intellectuals in your neighborhood, if you're afraid of looking ignorant and simplistic, 
verse 31, so that just as it is written in Jeremiah 9, let him who boasts, if you want to brag, boast in the Lord. Isaac Watts, I'll close with this, in 1748 wrote these glorious words. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most. I sacrifice them to his blood. The cross is where we meet God. You have to bring yours and come willing to die. Jesus said that's the invitation. Take up your cross and follow me. Where is he going? Well, he was headed up a hill called Calvary. He said, I'm going to die. I'm not going somewhere to conquer nations. I'm not going somewhere to flex my muscles. I'm not going somewhere to be big and bad. I'm going somewhere to be humbled. I'm going somewhere to give my life for those that don't deserve it. He said, if you want to follow me, take up your cross and come on. The invitation is to come and die. That's the invitation of God. And that's where we have to meet him. For you to think, or anybody to think, that, well, I, I don't really believe in the cross, not like Preacher Mike does. But I, I know Jesus was a good person, and I, I know he died, and, and they treated him really badly. And it was church people that did it. We always catch it. It was religious people. And you're right, it was religious people that did it. You got all of that. But instead of being ignorant in your jab at the church, look at what Scripture actually teaches. Jesus Christ, had he not died, you and I would have no hope whatsoever. We would have no hope. And for you to believe that you can have a relationship with God another way, try to imagine this. Try to imagine the Israelites crossing the desert and deciding that we're going to meet with God today, but not in the Holy of Holies. We're going to do it from home. We're going to watch Charles Stanley on TV. <laughs> he was really young then. I, I, I'm not preaching about going to church. I'm just... What I am saying to you is this, though, if you think you can meet God another way, just imagine after the temple was built, God's people saying, well, I don't think we've got to come down here and there's got to be other high priests besides just this one guy. I mean, I've sacrificed a lot in my life already. Could you imagine God going, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of cool with that. For you and I, there is no temple built by hands. 
for you and I, our high priest is Christ. Our sacrifice is Christ. And where we meet him is at the cross. Not some other way that's more convenient. Or maybe that looks more sophisticated. It's as simple as that. Let's bow our heads this morning. As we prepare to close in prayer today, I want to just tell you that a week from Sunday, we're going to baptize three men. The youngest is about 17, I think. The others are in their 30s or 40s. I, I'm serious. We, we are. And, and, and the reason for that, I, I will tell you, is because God has been moving in our fellowship. And we have three men, all of them nearly grown, with two of them with wives and children, homes. God has moved upon their heart that it is time to get serious Drive a stake in the ground. Let the world know for certain and without a doubt that I am a born-again Christian. No more playing. No more assuming I'm putting a stake in the ground. We'll be doing that in a couple of weeks. I can't help but believe there might be more than three. Not that baptism will save you but maybe you're here and you're not saved and you know in your heart that you you've never really you can't really point back to any time in your life when you really gave your heart and life to Jesus Christ and you put it off and you've taken other experiences and kind of molded it into yeah I guess I, I guess I am I Maybe you even finish that conversation off with, I, I just do the best I can. I, I try really hard. I, I treat people right. And maybe for you, that has for years satisfied it, your heart. But maybe today you've realized, maybe for the first time, that no, every time I've ever talked to God, I had two handfuls of rights, an armload of opinion. I had my own demands. I'd been hurt prior. I was holding him accountable for it, still expecting an apology, whatever it might have been. I don't know how you approach God. Maybe you've never really approached him by taking up your cross and following him to Calvary and dying to self and accepting his death as payment for your sinfulness. We may need to baptize more that Sunday. There may be others here like these men that you are a Christian. You know you are a Christian, but you've never really made that public profession of faith. That I want the world to know if it costs me my life tomorrow. I am a born-again child of God. And that will never change. God's moving in our fellowship, and I thank him for that. 
Lord, we do come to you right now, and we praise your name for touching hearts. God, we know that words is not going to do it. We know, Lord, that there are no great orators here. There are, there's, we're not sophisticates, God. We, we don't have that ability, Lord, to put into the, some kind of special wording or formula the gospel so that it would convince those who are hard of heart and who have minds, God, that think worldly. But Lord, we've seen what happens when your spirit touches someone. We've seen what happens, God, in our own life when your spirit melted us before you, Lord. When we fell before you just as nothing but sinners, not trying to justify anything we had done, but fell before you as a sinner begging for forgiveness and asking that your your righteousness could be ours as we stand before a righteous God. Thank you, Lord. I pray, Lord, for everyone who's here and those at home that are listening. I pray, God, right now that you would touch that heart, God, that needs to just make that move, clear it up, drive the stake in the ground, and follow you. I pray he would be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at ServantsWay.com or email us at office at ServantsWay.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.